0: Hey everyone, this is Julia, Self-Evident Senior Producer. Before we start the show, I just wanted to ask you to take our listener survey. It takes just a few minutes, it's anonymous, and your feedback really helps us figure out what we're doing next. You can take the survey at selfevidentshow.com slash participate, or check for the link in our show notes. Also, there's going to be some swear words in today's episode. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, it's Kathy. I'm here with our producer, James.
1: Yeah, I've been wanting to talk to you about something really great that happened to me towards the end of 2021. So it was a day after Thanksgiving, and I was in line with a friend to see Jeff Rosenstock, who's one of my favorite musicians. And this was the only show I'd been to since the pandemic started. It was freezing cold. I'd barely left my room for like three months. And we were starting to get news about this new thing called Omicron. Omicron. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep, yeah, but you didn't let that stop you, right?
1: Oh, no, there is nothing that would have stopped me from going to this show because Jeff Rosenstock makes punk music, but he also has a long history of being in ska bands.
2: What's up, everybody?
1: <clears throat> and this was a special leg of the tour called Ska Dream Nights, where the band played ska renditions of all their newest songs.
3: Oh, ska Dream, let's rock it
1: <laughs> just listen to this listen, listen to this this is my people amazing hundreds of ska fans dancing in the apartment.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness that's that's like your ska dream come true for real oh
1: yeah and i'm just grateful for that feeling you know when you're like going through tough times yeah and you know the exact place that you can go yeah to work it out you know maybe for some people that's the gym <laughs> i definitely right. not for me i don't go to the gym i, I go to see ska fans <laughs>
0: Okay, so if you're listening to this and you have no idea what in the world we're talking about, you might remember some names of ska bands that had hit singles in the 90s, like Real Big Fish Mm -hmm. or the Aquabats or the Mighty Mighty Boston's. Rest in peace. So I've heard people refer to ska music as fast reggae with horns. Which I know is not 100% accurate, so let me just get that out of the way. But uh, it's, something, it's something I've heard people say. Yeah,
1: I mean, we can get into musical details later, but here's one example of what 90s ska music sounds like. And Kathy, you might recognize this one. <laughs>
0: my God. Yeah. Yes, that is. Uh...
1: <laughs> I pulled this little gem out of the New Jersey pop punk archives. The band is called Taxi Cab and The trombone <laughs> player you're hearing in this band is actually Kathy's brother.
0: OK, this brings up a lot of memories. I mean, I we would see them at these underground shows with all these other punk and ska punk bands with big crowds of teenagers, and it was always at these veterans' halls and churches, and Mm -hmm. the energy was, I think it was like your Sky Dream concert, like 100%. It was through the roof, and I just remember being elbow to elbow with people who are just dancing and bouncing and jerking around, and (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, the intensity of the fans. It's really something at these shows.
1: Yeah, and I don't think it's a coincidence that I'm a Ska fan and your brother is a Ska fan.
0: Oh, is there something about Ska and Asian Americans?
1: Uh, Okay, so you are aware that I wear a lot of Ska band t-shirts, right?
0: Yes, I am. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So one of the reasons I do that is that whenever I'm in a public place, like especially if I have to go to a conference, which I don't really like, the Ska people will find me. And I've specifically met so many Asian-American ska people over the years just by wearing these t-shirts.
0: Wow, amazing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm talking like South Asian, Southeast Asian, East Asian, Asian adoptees, straight folks, queer folks, uh, men, women, non-binary, like every kind of Asian-American. And so I started asking all these Asian-American ska fans who mostly found the music in the 90s and 2000s, why is this music, which has no roots in any Asian country, such a big thing for us?
0: I want to dance to the music
4: and that was what was great about Spa. like everybody's moving
0: you don't have to dance with
3: anyone in particular because you're dancing with the entire room and so that's something that makes it really kind of beautiful too this is crazy this many people having this much fun there's a horn section god damn like you can do that creating new shit that I've never heard that first stumble into the unknown is exciting. A lot of it is made by people who are like kind of misfits or outcasts. I just thought ska was like a more welcoming kind of genre. What I liked about this scene too is there it was a subculture, but it was a subculture without elitism. It was cheap. It was accessible. It's a bunch of kids playing music at that point, right? Everybody was in high school being in love with
2: the music they were playing. I'm adopted. My parents never really exposed me to like other Asian folks. Playing in bands, you meet people from other areas. So I just like have this really amazing memory of like meeting two Korean adoptees and they became my like posse, you know. And
3: yeah, it just felt so amazing that we could do this and that anything was possible. You know, there was no gatekeeper saying, "Oh, you can't book this. You can't play this music. You can't sing these words." What makes ska feel like ska was this idea that you could make your own music culture.
0: This is Self Evident, where we tell Asian America stories to go beyond being seen. I'm your host, Kathy Array, And today I'm passing the mic to James, who's taking us into the subculture of a subculture, that is Asian American Ska fans.
1: That's right, and talking to those fans led me to one of the most loved musicians in Ska.
2: My name's Mike Park. I'm a father, son, husband, and I guess I'm most well-known for running Asian man records and uh, playing Ska. <laughs>
0: Mike Park. I totally remember how I was just blown away to discover the CD that my brother had. It was called The Bruce Lee Band, and it was his band. You know, I can't remember too many songs on it, but I definitely remember Don't Sit Next to Me Just Because I'm Asian. (laughs) So I I don't know. I always thought he was a really under-the-radar figure, but that song definitely had an impact on me.
1: Yeah, you know, I feel like most stories about Asian people and pop culture are about making it to the big stage. But Mike Park showed me how powerful it can feel to be part of something small, to build your own stage. And since Mike is still making new music, I was really excited to talk to him. And also I talked to Jer Hunter, who's a younger generation ska musician, to figure out what's truly special about this thing called ska and how to stop nostalgia for the past from getting in the way of our future.
0: So, James, I loved hearing from all those Asian American ska fans, but they were talking about American ska bands in the 90s and early aughts, right? hmm So can we talk about the history of the music? Because I know there's a deeper history there, right?
1: Yeah, and I actually think the reason ska resonates with Asian American fans does have a lot to do with the history of the music.
0: Okay. Even though, like you said, the history isn't tied to any Asian country.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let me give this a try. In the 1950s and 1960s, ska was actually the first modern pop music of Jamaica.
0: Oh, and was it actually called ska back then, too?
1: Oh, yeah. The biggest band of the era was the Skatalites. They played this multicultural mix of Afro-Caribbean dance music, folk music, and work songs. And then also 1950s Black American music, like R&B and jazz. It all mixed together. And because of immigration and indentured labor under the British Empire, there were also some Chinese Jamaicans helping to make the music. Not to mention a huge Indo-Caribbean population throughout the country.
0: Okay, so there have been Asian folks in Ska since the start.
1: I mean, don't get me wrong. Ska is a Black music, like full stop. But Jamaica's also a really multicultural place. You know, I think sometimes people hear that and they're surprised by it.
0: And what did ska sound like back then? I'm guessing not like my brother's ska punk band, but you know, <laughs> did ska bands back then have horn players for instance?
1: Yeah, but you hear horns in all kinds of music. And what really makes the ska sound is the rhythm. So oh. uh, yeah, I'm just gonna grab my guitar here to show you. <laughs> What's with these homies dissing my girl?
0: <laughs> Why do they got it from? <laughs> <laughs> Some Weezer there.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, Buddy Holly by Weezer is a good example. Um, if you listen to it, think about where the bass drum goes, right? The beat goes like this. one, two, three, four; one, two, three, four; one, two, three, four; one, two, three, four. That's a really typical backbeat. Uh. Now, here is this ska beat.
0: Oh, yeah. What
1: did we ever do to these guys that made them so violent? Yeah. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> and you know my <laughs> I don't know if I can play more of this song without getting sued. <laughs> so it's really like, N two, M three, and...
0: It literally just makes my head jerk. Like it's kind of swingy and it's like easy to dance to. And I'm like jerking around right now like a chicken. <laughs> so
1: Like a chicken.
0: <laughs> it's like always moving, you know?
1: Yeah, that's good. Like movement is actually the right word. Yeah. Because another huge aspect of this music, which I think instinctively clicks with Asian American fans, is that it's a multi-generational music and it, it's evolved through immigration and integration and people adapting it to where they go. After World War II, Jamaicans started moving in huge numbers to the UK uh, to take manufacturing jobs and other manual labor, and they brought the music with them. And so then there was this whole generation of working class, black and white, and Indo-Caribbean kids growing up with Jamaican music around them during the 50s and 60s. Then during the 1970s, when the economy was just in terrible shape. There was a surge in British right-wing groups who scapegoated immigrants, and not just black and brown Caribbean immigrants, but South Asian folks, too.
0: We will fight you back, and we'll fight you with every bone, every nerve, every feeling, every ounce of blood we've got. We will have... So
1: they were marching through black neighborhoods to do these hate rallies with protection from the cops. They were beating up South Asian people in the streets. Asians have also found themselves in danger on their way to and from work. They waited until the workers came out and they were systematically attacked very viciously. And one of the things that happened in response was that a bunch of black and brown and white kids got together and formed a new generation of bands that were explicitly anti-racist. And played ska. They played a punchier form of ska music, and they called it two-tone. And it had this whole attitude of, we got to come together to stand up to the racists who are literally stalking us and attacking us, and we can't let the powers that be pit us against each other.
0: Wait, so does two-tone refer to races? Yeah, it's...
1: It's black and white. I know that the cool Asian thing to say is <laughs> it's like not a black and white thing. There are Asian people too, but you know the two-tone iconography. The thing you probably recognize most is black and white checkers. Oh, like that's a yeah. forever scoffing, uh, and it all came from that emblem of black and white together, uh, racial solidarity. Got it. Yeah.
0: So. I know some of this music made it to the US, Mm -hmm. but did they ever get to like the top 40 charts or anything like that?
1: No, but ska was definitely spreading around the world. And during the 80s and 90s, a whole underground music scene popped up in the United States around ska. It was importing some of those two-tone political ideals and started mutating the music into all these different strands, like ska punk, ska core, ska funk, ska jazz.
0: Yeah. I remember. So that's when you and I were exposed to the music, right? Yeah.
1: And this is where I'll point out another reason I think I've met so many Asian American ska fans, aside from the fact that, you know, saxophone solos are just like the best thing in this world. (laughs) listen to this. Okay. So what I wanted to say is that ska music has this really hands-on way of respecting and sharing cultural heritage. One time, my friends and I went to see The Slackers. They're a band from New York. And instead of playing at a like a typical venue or a nightclub, they booked a community center. <laughs> it's a place that teaches international dance classes. And yep. so they do the show. But an hour before the show, they just like sat down on the stage with all the lights on. And people just kind of huddled around the front of the stage. And they had a teach-in with us about where Ska comes from. So they're talking about uh, the African... Afro-Caribbean history of Ska, the Jamaican immigrant uh, history with Ska, the political history of Ska, like all of these decades and decades. And it's not like they're reading from a book, right? They're they're kind of passing down things that they learned by going to find the music that is older, understand all of its roots.
0: Cool. That's like, you know, they're kind of sharing the culture and inviting you to be part of it. Yeah.
1: And it's like, you know, here's a place where you can access the history that came before And also add your own chapter to it. That I think is a really helpful experience because as Asian Americans, I think we can feel pressure to be authentic, to keep the traditions of our parents and grandparents. But then simultaneously, we're pressured to erase ourselves by assimilating, making white people feel comfortable, minimizing ourselves for like this idea of a melting pot. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in Asian American conversations, I think this typically comes up through this uh, two worlds idea,
0: mm-hmm. right? So you have one foot in your Asian world and one foot in your American world.
1: Yeah. But me personally, speaking as a second gen American, I've never felt like I live in two worlds. <laughs> I mean, I live in one world. <laughs> yeah. And in this world, everyone was telling me to conform to their expectations, like telling me who they think I'm supposed to be. Hmm. That was my experience growing up. And it was this that told me, hey, kid, if you are sick of conforming, if you're tired of following the rules of this rigid binary world, then you know what? Just go find some people you can get along with and like go make your own world. Nice. To me, that feels like a superpower. And I happen to pick up on that superpower from an Asian dude who dropped out of college to be in a ska band.
3: New on the experiment, we're opening a Pandora's can, a spam can of worms to uncover the power of America's favorite mystery meat. Spam has traveled around the world. It's inspired poetry, and it's set in motion a union battle that would change the course of history. Spam, How the American Dream Got Canned, is a three-part series about food, work, and family on The Experiment from the Atlantic and WNYC studios.
0: Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is Self-Evident. I'm Kathy Irway. Our producer James was just sharing his experience of getting into ska music, and a big part of that experience was hearing a Korean-American musician named Mike Park.
1: Mike Park grew up in a suburb of San Jose, California.
2: He was one of six Asian boys in his high school. Somehow, five of us were in the same P.E. class, and... I was good at sports, so I would always be a captain, and I would purposely only pick the Asian kids because we thought it was funny. But also because we stuck together.
1: Mike and his friends were also really into music, especially the stranger rock bands and underground punk rock groups. But Mike found his true calling in 1985 at the local movie theater.
2: I saw a movie called Dance Craze, which was about the ska movement in England. The energy, the footage of them playing live was amazing. And it was the first and only time I've seen people dance during the movie. So people are just dancing in the aisles, and it was pretty awesome. And I danced too. That was the start.
1: Mike got deep into the two-tone bands he was dancing to at the theater, like The Specials, The Selector, The Beat, Body Snatchers, and most of those bands were multiracial. Then he went to a $3 show in a basement at Santa Clara University to see Fishbone, an American all-black band that showed him an entirely new world of music.
2: Organized chaos, just frenetic ska, punk, jazz, funk, and just going apeshit wild. And everybody in the crowd going crazy and just a sweaty dance floor of just people having a good time. Especially if it was like a school night and I went and saw them, I couldn't sleep. And I would be like running on just a few hours sleep going to school. Up to that point, I had never experienced anything like it. And even today at 52 years old, I've never experienced anything like it. But what really struck with me was the logo, the simple fishbone logo with the fuck racism on the front of the shirt. And that was powerful. It just changed changed my life, really. That was the reason I wanted to be in a band, 100%, which has led me down this path. After high school,
1: Mike started a band called and Pickle. The band mascot was a pickle dancing to ska music. Mike sang and he played saxophone, and they self-released their first album, Ska Funk Rasta Punk, in 1991. This was five years before ska bands would make it big on mainstream radio. If they were going to make it, they had to go on tour across the country. And Mike had to tell his parents that he was dropping out of college to play in
2: a band full-time. It was at least a semester where I just pretended to go to school. They'd ask, how was school? I'm like, oh, it's great. But eventually I just, <laughs> I just had to man up and tell them, hey, I'm, I'm going to go on tour and I'd, I'm not going to school. And it was tough. It was tough for them because they just felt like it wasn't the right choice. It was tough for me because I was scared to tell them.
1: I first found out about Mike Park in the eighth grade when I was starting to feel totally alienated by popular music. It was the time of peak Spice Girls and the start of the boy band era. To me, everyone in pop felt like highly produced figurines of young people who couldn't actually speak to anything I cared about in the real world. So just like Mike fell in love with Scott when he saw the movie Dance Craze and felt that energy coming through the screen, I fell in love with Scott when an older kid handed me a cassette copy of Skank and Pickle Live. At the time, I had no idea who Mike Park was. But there was just nothing about this record not to fall in love with. Like the first track was a comedic parody of Saddam Hussein. The second track was called "Bacon Jamaican, basically poking fun at people who appropriate Jamaican culture. The third track was called David Duke is running for president. It was completely straight-faced 90 seconds of Mike basically shouting at the audience: Am I the only one who's worried that a Ku Klux Klan member is running for president? The The entire thing was live. Aside from playing trombone in my middle school band, I'd never seen live music, never heard a live concert recording, and I definitely never heard the frontman of a rock band introduce a song like this.
2: This song is called Pabu Boy. Pabu is a Korean word meaning stupid. And this is what my dad used to call me as a child when I would watch TV. He'd go, you Pabu Boy. And I'd go, eh, thanks dad. So this goes out to you dad. Pabu Boy.
1: Pabu Boy. I started looking for every Skank and Pickle album I could find, started living completely in my headphones. My mom was not pleased. <laughs> and You know what? Mike Park's
2: mom wasn't pleased either. My mom cried almost every day. I would bet a good chunk of money that she told me to go back to college every day that I physically saw her when I wasn't on tour. So yeah, not a lot of support. It was only when I started making money that I got support.
1: But even as Mike's band started making pretty good money and building a huge following across the country, he started to feel the
2: cost of all this nonstop hustling. Yeah, I was burnt out on touring. I think we were playing like 200 shows a year from 92 to 96. We were not in a tour bus, we were just in a van and we were staying on people's floors for a good chunk of our touring lives. So it sucked.
1: When I got a hold of the newest and Pickle CD, I read a message from Mike Park in the liner notes saying that he was leaving the band. This was right when ska bands were becoming a surprise hit, taking the rest of the country by storm. So Mike was quitting just as MTV was constantly playing a music video for the song Sellout by the band Real Big Fish, which is literally a song about cashing in on ska's 15 minutes of fame. But then I found out Mike wasn't quitting on ska, he was doing the opposite. He was starting new bands and making new music that was explicitly from the perspective of Asian-Americans embracing their identity and calling out racism, including anti-Asian racism. And to put out this new music, he was starting a whole new record label.
2: An ethical business that can showcase bands that have no home. I, I think that's how every indie label starts. And the reason why I called it Asian Man was I wanted people to know it was a person of color that was running this. The Asian Man
1: Records logo was based on the South Korean flag. The office was literally Mike's parents' garage. He signed the bands that he made friends with and the bands he'd inspired when he was on the road with Skank and Pickle.
2: And within a year, I think we grossed over a million dollars. That's from a garage with me as the only employee. And that's how it was. I could have put out anything that said Ska and I was going to sell a ton of records. And that's what was happening. Like Moon Records from New York, they started a subsidiary, a Ska subsidiary of their own Ska label called Ska Satellite. So they could put out bands that sucked and still make money off them. But what made Asian Man
1: special wasn't the sales. It was how Mike made the sales. He'd produce albums with teenagers on shoestring budgets and use his reputation as an OG ska musician to get their music into stores. He would sell thousands and thousands of CDs directly to fans from the garage, without metal men, without marketing, so that people could actually afford to pay for the music. And when the Vans Warped Tour was laying the groundwork for corporate-sponsored music festivals, Mike put on a grassroots tour called Ska Against Racism which donated all of its proceeds to anti-racist organizations. Seeing all the Asian man bands and fans come together for a ska against racism completely changed my perception of what music could be. But the Mike Park story that sticks with me most is when I was in college and Mike booked a show across town and I didn't have a car, but one of my Korean classmates was actually going to play cello for a couple songs during his set. So I said, Helen, uh, how are you getting to the show? And she said, "Ah, Mike will give us a ride. And yeah, Mike came and picked us up. So (laughs) so to me, that's Mike Park. He gave a fan he'd never met a ride to his own show. And when I talked to Asian Man Records fans from all over the country, even people who had never met Mike in person had these feelings of familiarity and trust. Like every new piece of music came with a little reminder that an Asian man was at the wheel trying to steer us in the right direction.
4: One of the first songs that I started singing to my daughter
1: was Gankin Pickles' Annyeonghaseyo. <laughs> oh,
0: sorry,
3: I don't mean it laugh that. No. no, I think that's really cute.
4: I mean, the lyrics of the song are literally in Korean. Hello, hello, I can't speak Korean.
3: I mean, on top of that, like, the sort of Korean knee-jerk expression of dismay,
4: like, as like a ska chant like I mean what the fuck (laughs) it was crazy it was like I didn't realize that like music and art could combine so many aspects of my identity with it too in such just kind of a fun package
3: I just remember being so stunned like it's just telling you this is who I am you're allowed to talk about this you can talk about your being Asian, like you can talk about the feelings you have when people assume things about you just because you're Asian. Mike Park was up on stage, and I remember
1: kind of having this feeling of like, okay, it's it's all right for me to be here. It's all right for me to enjoy this music, and I should make sure that other people feel included as well.
3: He had a, a, like a printout sheet of like how to start your own band or how to like start your own record label. Here's what it looks like when you're not getting screwed over, um, when someone's not just trying to exploit you. I feel like that's a hard trait
2: to find these days. <laughs> As I grow older and you know, the Asian American community becomes more and more highlighted by companies, then we can see that all that translates to is commodification, right? It's like, how can we commodify a culture and sell it to other people? Whether it be food, clothing, whatever, whereas on the DIY end, with things like Asian Man, they're making this thing because it's something that they genuinely care about and believe in.
1: So I've been playing all these clips of conversations I had with Asian Americans who love Asian Man Records, and it actually turns out that multiple people who helped start Self Evident were also influenced by Mike Park. Including our sound engineer, Tim.
3: Like tons of other struggling teenagers who don't know what the fuck to do with their lives, I kind of went out seeking the answer. And the answer for me at that time was I'm going to live a musician's life, whether that be playing in a band or owning a record label or something like that. So I Googled local record label owners and Asian Man Records came up. And so I emailed Mike Park through the Asian Man website and said, hey, I'm wondering if I could talk to you, man. You messaged me back saying, yeah, come on down. Come to the garage, and we'll get you on your way. I was just thinking, yeah, like, he's gonna say, follow your dreams of music, go out on the road, do this and that, like, leave your family, (laughs) you know, literally. Like My family, to me at that time, was an obstacle to the things that I wanted to do. But he basically said, I'm not gonna tell you how to live your life I can't tell you to leave your family, to ditch your family. Like, that's totally the wrong move to do. What are you thinking? (laughs) Because he straight up said, yeah, this is my mom's house. I I do all my business out of here. Things for me could have gone a completely opposite and wrong way. And had he not been real enough to tell me that, oh man, I would be in a completely different place. (laughs) I'd been so much worse off.
1: So Tim stayed at home finished school, kept playing music. But he also grew up. He's still close with his family, and he still lives just a short drive away from Asian Man Records. It's the same with Mike Park. When Asian Man started bringing in good money, he bought a house not too far from his parents' house. The entire business still fits in their two-car garage and their basement in Monte Sereno, California.
2: So this was here when we first started. What is this? Phone line. (laughs) Phone line. Dial-up phone line. So this is the original phone line right here. I just ran the phone line through the downstairs uh, phone jack and brought it into the garage and kind of did everything here. And every square inch of this downstairs was used to pack or actually hold records or extra jackets and CDs and stuff like that.
1: Over the past two years, Mike's thrown out over 50,000 physical records and CDs. But he still has dozens of photos pinned to bulletin boards of bands, of random fans, of family members going back to the 90s.
2: Looking at these pictures definitely brings back memories. It's my dad when he was alive. He passed away 20 years ago, so it showed you how old that that is. I can recall him pulling the car into this garage and working on his car doing everything himself.
1: Mike's mom is 85. And since the label's been financially stable for over two decades, and Mike and his wife have been raising their own kids, it's been a while since she told him to go back to school. But she does make lunch for him, just like when he started 25 years ago. Most days, Mike runs Asian Man Records all by himself. His TikTok account has videos of him reading unreasonable emails he gets from the rare customer who doesn't realize that customer service is him.
2: We are not Amazon, and it's not even we. It's I, as an I'm the only guy who works here. It's not Asian Man Records Prime, it's just Asian Man, singular.
1: He's still writing and releasing new songs of his own. He still puts out a few new records a year by musicians less than half his age. He even posts videos of himself listening to demos from unsigned bands.
2: First listen, awesome. I could see this band just playing like a DIY punk show. Everybody pushed up front singing along to the singer, just like, I want to...
1: But Mike doesn't go on tour anymore.
2: No matter how often,
1: his longtime fans around the
2: country beg him to get back out there and help us relive our ska dreams. Mostly it's just commenting on social media or straight-up emails. And they'll say, we need you, we need you to do these again to help this next generation. But I think it's them looking back to their youth and when they went to ska against racism and how much it affected them. Now, as adults, when
1: I first heard Mike's voice on a bootleg cassette, the Ska show felt like the best place for an Asian kid who wanted to take on the world, make it into something different. But that was 25 years ago. Today, it feels like America is even more committed to the status quo, like anti-Asian racism is more brutal, more cruel. And when Mike and I talked, the idea that Ska could be a tool in the struggle against racism and injustice felt more like a dream than a reality, Mike, I was wondering how this most recent wave of anti-Asian violence
2: has affected you. It's terrible. I feel empty inside. And I've used me- music as therapy. All the music I've written over the last two years, and I've written a shitload of music, it's angry music. Like I'm angry. Asian people are always seen as the the good minority. They're not troublemakers are we deemed that mouse-like or timid that anybody can fuck with us, fuck with our elders, continue to blindly attack innocent bystanders? It it, will continue to make me angry until there's some movement in the right direction. I don't think we're going in the right direction. I don't think you think we're going in the right direction. It's like one step forward, two steps back in my lifetime. That's how it's feeling right now. Yeah, I was
1: actually about to ask if it's shaken your faith. You've been making anti-racist music from an Asian perspective for over three decades. It's been like 24 years since you've led the Scott Against Racism tour, and things today just seem so dire. So at this
2: point, what do you think the power of your music is? It's hard to tell. I know it affects a lot of people in a positive way just through decades now of feedback. It helps people to cope with their insecurities, their anger issues. It's able to perhaps sway someone who doesn't understand what I'm going through or what the Asian American community is going through.
1: I know I'm not the first person to say this, but when I found out about Skoggins Racism, the entire thing just blew my mind, right? Like, I needed to see it, just seeing a musical movement in person that was recognizing and pushing back on racism in the year 1998. Like, that was nowhere on anyone's radar. And you raised, I I believe it was $23,000 for anti-racist organizations. Yeah,
2: which is pennies. Pennies. Pennies.
1: (laughs) Okay, but when you say pennies and laugh, I mean, for a fan like me, what's the story of that tour that I
2: never saw. I mean, the shows were great. People were great. It was was amazing. Historically, ska was a very political, like, working-class music. And it had turned into kind of this, like, comedic circus music. And the politics were lost. And so I just said, okay, let's do something that's more than just strictly capitalism. So that's how it started. But... The reality is anytime you try to put together some kind of benefit tour, it's tough. If we had planned it better, I could have been more involved with each city and had the right people out, the right speakers. We just didn't, we didn't have enough, we didn't have enough activism. I was making no money. I was donating my time 100%. I just felt like, you know, why, why am I even doing this? And then I'd have to step back and go, well, the reason you're doing this is because you do want to make a difference. You don't want to just put another faceless rock tour together. You want to have a, a message behind it.
1: And since you've had such a tough time with these more ambitious projects like the Benefit Tours or your nonprofit community center, which basically required a ton of unpaid work for five years, like what's your perspective on the personal sacrifices that it takes to do this stuff? Like, Have you changed your mind about how much people should be pushing themselves, sacrificing their well-being to a degree for the cause, for the community.
2: My thought process has flipped 180 degrees over the last couple years, and that's because I had a complete mental health breakdown. At the end of 2019, I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. I had always been high stress, anxious person, but I've always been able to to function at a high level. But that year, at the end of that year, I, it just wasn't working anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't function. I had to, I had to go on meds. My best friend is a doctor at Kaiser was able to get me like instantly get me Xanax. He's like, dude, you need something right now to help. And I was like, oh, this is great. So I totally understand Xanax abusers.
1: (laughs) I, how did you get to that conversation being to the point where someone could visibly or
2: audibly say, you need this right now? Like what was happening? Oh, well, I was like in a ball, like I couldn't get out of bed. And that's so unlike me. I've just like, my heart was beating so fast all the time. And it was just like, basically, if someone said, let's go to an insane asylum right now, I would have said, okay, let's go. It was that bad being a father, being a husband, being a son, having to be so close to my mom because my business was there, having to worry about all my mom's finances, her bills, my family's finances and bills, the bans on Asian man. It was to the point where my brain couldn't shut off and that was from overworking. So when I was going through that mental health spiral, I tried everything. I did meditation. I took meds. I did therapy, sauna. Yoga, acupuncture, constantly researching, Googling, which is a terrible thing to do. But I found a comfort zone of what worked for me. The meds helped. It took a long time. It took like a good three months for that stuff to kick in. Lexapro. Shout out to Lexapro. And I finally started seeing like, oh, okay, I see some light at the end of the tunnel. And then slowly like made healthy decisions, just getting outside, walking in the morning every day, at least 45 minutes before I even started my day, looking at my surroundings and taking a second to breathe, pick a spot and just meditate for a little bit. So I worked hard to get healthy and continue to work hard. So going back to this, this like work
1: ethic thing, right? Like working too much, burning yourself out. Yeah. It's the, the 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 interesting part of it. It's like, we need a community, right? Yeah. It's all about building and connecting with that community that we know is there, can be there, mm-hmm. and helping each other. But ironically, to do that, you have to go out on your own <laughs> and then you gotta do very difficult things. And it can be at your own expense. And sometimes you have to be like, I got to stop because I'm going crazy.
4: Yeah, or, I had to stop.
1: I'm, I'm I'm burning out.
2: I burned out. I stopped touring. I couldn't do it anymore. But that's DIY because it's people who are waiting for someone else to help them. Or the ones who never get out and do stuff. I, I think that's really the key is you just got to We just need someone out there. Some kids need to start a band that just... Th- influences a next generation because it ain't going to be me <laughs> <laughs> it's not up to us to decide what the next generation does it's up to them we don't know what the next counterculture movement is going to be as long as those artists are creating something unique unto themselves that gives inspiration to others that's really all we can ask for. Guided by your And that's just part of my job, and it's fun. It's fun to like learn about new things, new bands, new artists, new sayings, new techniques. What? <laughs> okay, what new sayings, such as? Just you know, what kids their little <laughs> slang, bruh, or just whatever. <laughs> you know, I'm constantly using the word bruh to my daughter because she <laughs> says it so much to me. When I went to the Ska Dream
1: Show, I could see that plenty of people are still doing it for the culture. And there are plenty of younger bands that older generations of Ska fans just aren't looking for. But these generations are all connected. Jeff Rosenstock, the headliner, used to put out music on Asian Man Records with his band, Bomb the Music Industry. And the opening act was Jer Hunter.
4: This is the first Jer the second Jer Show ever. (laughs)
1: They're a 26 year old black queer musician from South Florida, who's probably best known for creating hundreds of Ska cover songs on their YouTube channel, Ska2 Network. After finishing their set, they basically just stayed on stage with a trombone and kept on playing with every other band, just like dancing all over the place and wearing a fishbone t-shirt. Their name pops up in lots of stories claiming that Ska is making a comeback after disappearing from the American mainstream. But Jer is always the first to say that Ska never went away, and that the Ska scene has never been perfect, even when it comes to racism. But the music has grown all over the world,
4: and here in the U.S., the scene has gotten closer to its roots. You had a lot of talented people who were making Ska music, but like they were too ashamed of it because X, Y, and Z, and so they just like left the genre. And so I feel like it weeded out all of the, like, (laughs) The weak people, you know, the people who like can't form their own opinions, the people who who would otherwise gatekeep were too cool to gatekeep ska, who want to exploit and only want to make money and like weeded them out. And like what you were left with was just like this like very small but caring community of people. In 2020, when going to a ska
1: show seemed next to impossible, Jer was one of 28 bands with a song on the new Ska Against Racism which was a multi-generational compilation made by Mike Sosinski, the owner of Bad Time Records, a social media group called Ska Punk Daily, and of course, Mike Park. While the original Ska Against Racism tour lasted for two months and donated $23,000 in proceeds, the new Ska Against Racism made over $50,000 in one day, eventually grossing over $100,000 and donating 100% of it to anti-racist groups. How much do you know about the original Scott Against Racism tour? I was like,
4: probably, I don't even know if I was, what, what year did that tour even happen in? 1998. I was three years old. Yeah, so like, <laughs> I, was, I, I wasn't I was really able to go to a show and, and really be conscious about what was around in my surroundings at that point. But I remember like having stickers in like very early high school that said Scott Against Racism that I got at shows or whatever, I would see the shirts. And it has a legacy. It kept inspiring other people and I, I, and I feel like w- when you see that especially as a person of color you see that okay this is like a community that that kind of wants to at least for overt racism address it and make sure that's not a thing that's happening and that's like a very comforting because there's a lot of places where you know that stuff does happen and people kind of don't care
1: something I talked to Mike about was just he always felt frustrated by that experience right and didn't feel like he was making enough of an impact. It definitely took a lot out of him personally. Mm-hmm. It's just this torn feeling, I think, of trying to do something positive and in the right way, but coming up against criticism weirdly for not doing enough. Yeah, <laughs> and then also criticism for trying in the first place. How does it feel for you to hear that that's the reality of what the original Scoggins racism,
4: did and how it went down as an activist and as like a leftist type of perspective you really want like all of the issues to be solved and like we all want to like kind of like make this impact to like change things because like it feels like we have no control over like a crumbling world but we don't need like one person making the huge change we kind of need everybody making a small change so like, did did Mike solve racism in music? No. But also, like, Mike probably inspired hundreds, if not thousands of people over the time to kind of start to question racism, think about it a little bit deeper. And inadvertently, if that never happened, the 2020 compilation, Scott Against Racism, also would have never happened, which raised nearly $100,000 for organizations, you know? Like, because of the money raised through that, you have, like a young Black girl who's learning how to code. And that's a very useful skill to have, especially in the world that we're going into. So, like, someone who might have not had an economic opportunity has been given an economic opportunity. You have someone who might have otherwise been facing jail time, and now they're not because of the money that was donated towards the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Addressing racism in the 90s was like, let's not be racist, we're past that. Now the addressal of racism is like, racism is a system that is embedded within our society and how do we like actively dismantle that system and recognize like what upholds that system and that's something that the new scoggins racism compilation does a better job at doing at least with like the bands active like a lot of these new bands had been donating to like local mutual aid groups like groups that fight for prisoners rights and stuff like that Offering mutual aid that like watches your kids while you go do like the voting, you know, watches your kids while you go do your job so you can like build much more of a base for you to be stable and to get out of these conditions. To me, that's very, very important where someone's life is very literally materially being made better because of what we have been able to do. Like most ska bands today, Jer can't live entirely off of this music.
1: They work as a marching band teacher and compose music on commission from cartoons and games and brands. They're just starting to earn royalties and go on more live tours. And their most steady source of income is paid subscriptions to Scottu Network. It's a video channel where Jared does Scott covers of songs ranging from Childish Gambino's Redbone to my personal favorite, the Koopa Troopa Beach theme from Mario Kart 64.
4: The stability honestly comes from the Patreon with Scottu Network. That's where like, Ah, I don't have to worry about my rent. And with Two Network on YouTube,
1: you're doing covers. And a lot of times they're covers of very well-known songs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you ever feel like what you do on YouTube is, in a way, responding to the nostalgia craving? Is there some extent to which you yourself are a little trapped by these forces of huge demand for
4: give the people what they want, give the people what they know. Yes. Oh, oh yes. I did a Blink-182 cover. I did three actually, but two of them really popped off. And as as successful as they were and as they gained me like 100,000 or so subscribers, in a way it was also kind of a mistake because now what i'm stuck with is 100,000 or so people who like won't watch my videos unless i do like a pop punk cover you know like they they only want what they're nostalgic for which sucks because i feel like whenever i do a cover i'm creating something new and like i'm a type of person where if i don't know a cover i'll still watch it because i, I like that artist like if i hear a cover and i don't know it's a cover, then it's an original to me. If I do know it's a cover, but I don't know the song, it stands on its own. And for some people, I think that they just like because of nostalgia, they can't see things as standing on its own. One of my biggest running questions throughout this whole process of talking to
1: Ska fans has been how much of what we love about this music is truly unique about the music, and how much of it is just us rehashing our formative memories. I'm 38. Okay. <laughs> You're 26. Mike is 52. Right. And you're a working musician. Right. And then you go into the shows and you go online and you're constantly interacting with and sometimes butting up against my generation (laughs) or Mike's generation. Right. Talking about their ska or not always living in the present, sometimes
4: living in the past.
1: How does that come
4: across to you? I think a lot of people miss a certain period of their life for one reason or another. And then another part of it is, there's actually like a scientific reason behind nostalgia. Nostalgia is created because when you're going through that period of puberty of your life, your brain is associating that with this this rush of dopamine. That's why like the first time you hear that record when you're 14 years old, or like the first time you watch this show and it has a special place in your heart, it's not in your heart. It's literally in your brain. It's like what your brain remembers that dopamine, <laughs> like <laughs> like dopamine to be. So I think a lot of people just get really attached and they allow that like sense of nostalgia to really cloud like their, their vision. And that's like a thing that always strikes me about the language. When people talk about like older ska, like 90s ska or like whatever, they always kind of word things as if it's a competition. And music's not a competition. When I'm listening to like one band I'm not like oh yeah this is good but it's it doesn't compare to this like, to me, that's so weird to talk about music like that. Like something that's like an art that's so like subjective to treat it like it's objective. They make their nostalgic to an objective like take where if I'm nostalgic for it, it's objectively better. And I'm like, n- n- nah, that's not true. Like, <laughs> that's not true <laughs> at all. Like It's longing for a time that's not going to come back. And I'd much rather focus on building a type of future I want to see rather than logging for a past that doesn't exist anymore that might be a little deep and philosophical when the question asked is ska nostalgia. But I think it it just translates to any facet of life. Like I could get hung up on the nostalgia of a song or a band or a type of music, or I can take that same energy and try to find something new and fresh I've never experienced before. I think that's the best thing about being a human and being alive is all of the experiences and art and people and culture that you can have. And Nostalgia, in my opinion, just gets in the way of that.
1: So, by the way, I was at Scott Dream Night in Brooklyn, which was just amazing. And I wanted to ask you, what was the best part of playing that show?
4: Jeff fans are awesome. Like, they're really incredible people. Uh, There's a lot of, like, uh, representation, especially like, queer representation, which is something that I feel like there is not as much of in Scott. And so to see kind of like a lot of like people who are like, you know, me as like a queer person to be in that show where the audience is like that, where the people I'm playing it with both in my band and in Jeff's band are all like-minded and very and like, it just felt safe and comforting.
1: It really punches through all of the things that I feel kind of pushed down our humanity. Mm-hmm. And it's so simple.
4: Yeah. So there was actually a very specific moment. It was just like a moment in a song where I'm just dancing and Jeff's dancing. And then we just like look at each other and then we just start dancing together. Like, that's it. That's it. It, That's the whole moment.
0: So James, after talking to all these people, do you still believe in the ska dream?
1: Kathy, in the year 2022, If you ask me to choose between Ska Dream and the American Dream, (laughs) it's Ska Dream, Ska Dream all the way. Yep. But you know, this whole time in the back of my head, I have been asking myself, what's driving me to talk to all these people? When I was just calling up my Asian American Ska friends, a big part of it was uh, reminiscing about the past. But when I spoke to Mike and Jer and got to know what it's taken for them to keep this subculture going over the past two generations, I did start to feel like, now more than ever, Scott has something real to show us. And it's not about bringing back something from the past. It's not about any kind of art form being magical enough to heal the world on its own. It's about never forgetting that we ourselves have power. And no matter how oppressive and brutal the world can feel, We can still use that power to find each other, to help each other, to make something just for us. So to wrap up this story, I wrote a song. I started sharing it with some of the Ska fans I talked to for this episode and asked if they wanted to play on it. Okay, so whether today is the first time you've ever heard of Ska music, or you're already a fan, or you're just feeling pushed down by the world right now, I hope this gives you a reason to move. help us break down what's gone so wrong. Can't see to heaven on the stairway. Can't run from hell on the subway. Can't hold a candle to the pretense of defensive steps that go beyond. I want you to take a stand.
0: This episode was produced, written, and sound designed by James Boo.
1: With story edits from Julia Hsu and Kathy Irway, fact-checking by Tiffany Bowie and Harsha Nahata, and sound mix by Timothy Lu Lee. Our theme music is by Dorian Love.
0: If you liked today's episode, write us a good review on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend.
1: Yeah, it really helps people find the show.
0: Almost all the music you heard in this episode is from Asian Man Records, thanks to Mike Park. You can see a full track list in the show notes and on our website, selfevidentshow.com.
1: The original song we produced for this episode was written by me. It features Dorian Love on bass and Chris Airway on trombone and trumpet. Dorian and I mixed the music.
0: Thanks to Mike Park and Jer Hunter for being on the show today.
1: And huge thanks to all of the Ska fans and Asian Man Records fans who spoke with me for this episode. That's Arvin Temkar, Brad Babler, Brian Kim, Chris Airway, Daisy Butanatsum Pop, Daryl Stein, Dorian Love, Eugene Yi, Holly Chan, J.B. Rowe, Kate Page, Mitchell James Cho Rahul Singh, Raman Segal, Ravi Vasudevan, Sam Aqua, and Steph Ching.
0: Self Evident is a studio to be production. Our executive producer is Ken Akeda.
1: This episode was made with support from PRX and the Google Podcast Creator Program,
0: and of course, our listener community. This is the last episode of our third season. If you want to help make our work sustainable, go to selfevidentshowcom slash supporters and become a monthly sustaining member.
1: Or you can sign up for our mailing list.
0: I'm Kathy Irway. Let's talk soon.
2: Until then, fuck racism.